Morning, Hume SoCal. What's up? I don't know about that. You, I can tell you guys miss your mommies and daddies, don't you? It's really sad. It's hard to be at camp. It's hard to be here because who's going to pick out your clothes, right? Who does that? Normally, your parents do it. I know. I know how it works. Uh, I feel like these jokes are going over really well so far. Uh, this morning, thanks very much. Last night, we talked about the truth of God. This morning, I want to talk to you about uh, exactly what Megan was just articulating in the spoken word piece there. The idea of the truth of Scripture, right? Because for all of us, no matter who you are, and recognize too, in a week like this, we got people in the room who love God's Word, who love Jesus, who've been following Jesus from the time they were kids. We've also got people in here who have significant questions, good questions, and, and people who have doubts. We've got people in the room who don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. They don't believe that He's God. They don't believe the Bible's worth paying attention to. I love that we're all mixed up here together, right? It's a great opportunity for, to process, for us to process some of these things together and to ask good questions. You know, the reality is that God can stand up and answer any of the questions that you have. So it's not wrong. I think sometimes when you come to a church camp and you have doubts or you have questions, uh, it can feel like you're out of place. You're not. You're exactly in the right place. It's a perfect place to grapple with some of the questions you've got, right? Because we're all in different spots on the journey of life and faith. But your life will be organized by what you believe is true, right? Your life will be shaped based on what you believe. Uh, and there's all kinds of examples of this. I remember one time I was flying from L.A. to Spokane, Washington. I was teaching at a conference up in Spokane, and I had a layover in Seattle. And I got to Seattle, uh, and when I got to Seattle for my connecting flight, they said, hey, we've got a slight delay. We're going to be delayed for about an hour because we got some slight mechanical trouble on the plane but after an hour, we'll get you guys on the go, so just be patient, we're going to go. So I'm sitting at the gate at the Seattle airport, and I'm looking out the windows at the plane I'm supposed to take to Spokane. And it was like uh, one of these twin propeller planes, whatever, and the mechanic comes out, and he gets the engine cover off the engine, and he's working on it, but it doesn't look like he knows what he's doing. You know what I'm saying? I'm watching through the glass, and the longer he's working, like he's taking cables out, he's removing things, he calls some other people, they kind of look at it. The longer he's working on it, the more I think, like, this isn't like he needs to change a light bulb, right? It's not like there's just a loose wire. Like, this is a major thing he's doing to the engine of the plane I'm supposed to fly on. After an hour, uh, they come over the speaker system, and they're like, ladies and gentlemen, we're really sorry, but it's actually a more complicated problem than we initially thought, so we're actually going to have a three-hour additional delay. We're going to give you all meal vouchers. You can get a sandwich or whatever. So I go get some food. I'm sitting at the Seattle airport. I'm looking through the window, and I'm watching. Now they pulled the cover off the other engine. They're pulling things out. They're kind of scratching their heads. They're calling a radio. And the longer I sit there, the more I think, like, this plane's going to crash. You know, like, this, is gonna, this plane's not going to make it to Spokane. There's a serious problem. And I'm thinking about all those stories. You, you know, we've all kind of heard those stories of people who had, like, a, a premonition or, like, a feeling that their plane was going to crash, and then it did or whatever. And I'm thinking, like, I don't even, like, I don't want to die. I want to see my family again. I don't even care about Spokane. Like, I don't know. Why was I even going there in the first place? I just want to go home. And as I'm sitting there in the airport, like, I'm getting more stressed out. Like, my, I'm sweating, my gripping the armrest. I'm just, like, really kind of freaked out about this flight. After I've been sitting there for four hours watching them work on the flight, they finally just, like, it doesn't ever feel like they fix anything. They just kind of shrug. They put the stuff back in the engines. They close it up. And then they're like, okay, it's time to board. And I'm like, this is not going to make it. Like, this plane is in trouble, right? I should not be getting on this plane. So I'm super anxious and super worried because I'm convinced the plane's going to crash. And then the craziest thing happens. I get on the flight, and I'm sitting in my seat, stressed out, like, just, like, worried about it. And the stewardess comes up front, and she goes, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you know, we had to combine two commuter flights tonight because of the delay. And what that means is, unfortunately, there are some folks who wanted to go to Spokane tonight, but they're not going to be able to make it. 
uh, be, because we, we, we don't have enough seats on this flight. She says, I want to introduce you to uh, Mrs. Jenkins. And there's this little, I kid you not, she had to be 100 years old. This little old lady who comes up in the front and she goes, Mrs. Jenkins was supposed to fly to Spokane tonight with her family. They're right here in the first two rows. And like the first two rows of people like turn around and wave. She goes, we're kind of wondering if there's anyone on this flight who would be so noble and so sacrificial and kind that they would be willing to give up their seat to Mrs. Jenkins. And I was like, yep, I will. I'll do it, you know. And uh, so I stand up and I grab my backpack. Like I'm trying to get off this flight. And uh, as I stand up, like the people on the plane, the other people start to clap for me, right? They're like applauding. They're like, I can see it in their eyes. They're like, you're a hero. Like you are doing this wonderful thing. But in my heart, I was thinking, Mrs. Deacons is going to die, you know? <laughs> like uh, everything in me was like, but you know, she's, she's old, you know? It's like she's, and she, at least she's going to die with her family. So that's nice, right? So it works out. And I just like trying to get out. They gave me a, a gift certificate for $500, right? So I got a prize. I got applauded. Everyone on the plane thought I was a hero, but in my heart, I was a murderer, right? You get it? Like, I was, and like, and we can sit here this morning, and we can, I can tell you that story, and we can laugh about it, but if you really think what that story says about me, like, the pastor of a church deciding he would rather live and let an old lady die, that's not a good thing, right? But it, it informs the idea that what you believe, if you believe the plane's going to go down and you believe that your life has more value than somebody else in that moment, then you'll do things that are not noble, that are not good, that are not brave, that are not sacrificial, even though other people might perceive them that way, right? We are motivated all the time by what we believe. So it makes sense this week to be paying attention to this theme, truth be told, to understand not only the truth of God, but this morning to talk about the truth of God's word or the truth of scripture. I mentioned last night that in John 1, which we're studying the book of John all week, in John 1, at the very beginning, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And we talked last night about the fact that what John's talking about is not the Bible, but rather he's talking about Jesus, Jesus as the word of God. And we talked last night about how Jesus is the center of all of the way that God wants to reveal himself to us. But for most of us, when we read John 1, 1, and it says, in the beginning was the Word, when you think about the Word of God, your mind, whether you're a Christian or not, your mind probably goes to the Bible, that book, right, with 66 other books inside of it. When we think about God's Word or God's uh, revelation or His articulation, most of the time we don't think of Jesus when we think of God's Word. Most of the time we think of this book, right, the Scriptures. And, and it is fair that the Scriptures are God's word. So I want to I clarify a couple things, even as we begin talking about the truth of the scripture. The Bible does tell us that what we have in the scriptures is God's communication. It is God's word. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So it tells us in 2 Timothy that the Bible is God-breathed, right? That it's good for teaching and correction. We believe as Christians that because God is the one who gave us this word, that, that though it came through human authors, it is inspired by God. We believe the word of God is inspired. And we see that backed up in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. It says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We believe that God's word is given to us by God, that it was breathed out by him. We believe that it's inspired. We believe that it's inerrant. And what I mean by that is that it's true, right? That God doesn't lie, that he can't lie. 
And so every word of the Bible we believe is true. We believe there is truth to be found in God's word. We also believe that God's word is sufficient. In Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5, it says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar, right? So we believe that God's word is true. Uh, the big sort of philosophical word for that is inerrancy. We don't believe there's any errors in the Bible. We believe it's inspired. We believe it's inerrant, right? That it's true in all of its words. We believe that it, that it came from God and that it is for us. But I want to be really clear that when we're talking about the truth of the Bible, while we believe that God's word is inerrant, it doesn't have any flaws, while we believe it's inspired, that it came from God himself, while we affirm that God's word, God's word is inerrant and true, what we don't affirm is that human interpretation is always true. Does that make sense? So while we'll certainly say that what God has said here is true, our reading of God's word is by its very nature broken because you and I are broken. All of us have fundamental biases. All of us read God's word with a particular lens that has to do with where we come from. It has to do with our upbringing. It has to do with the things that people have taught us. It even has to do with our preferences. When we read God's word, we bring to it a brokenness and therefore human interpretation. And I, I don't just mean the human interpretation of camp speakers. I mean the human interpretation of anybody who's ever looked at it. All men and women are broken, right? We've all got flaws. And so all human interpretation is prone to fallibility, right? So while we believe that God's word is true and infallible, we don't believe that all interpretation is perfect. We have to be careful because our understanding and our interpretation may, may be mistaken. There are Christians throughout the centuries that have made terrible, horrible misunderstandings of the Bible endorsing things like slavery or endorsing things like empiricism or endorsing things like the suppression of women or people of color, right? There is all kinds of stuff that's been justified in the Bible, but that isn't the truth of God's word. That is the fallibility of man's interpretation. So we have to always be on guard. Does that make sense? We have to be on guard about the interpretations of others and we have to be on guard about our own interpretation because while what God has said is truth, the way we read it might be busted. Right? The way we read it might be busted. We have to be careful. The people in the Bible, though, and this is important, the people in the Bible organized their lives around the scriptures that they had. They didn't necessarily have all the scriptures we have today because some of the books of the New Testament were being written after the time that Jesus was here. But even in John chapter 1, we were looking at the first half of that last night. In the second half, we see several categories of people who organized their lives around what the Bible said. So we see that God's word was inspired and that it is inerrant, that it's given to us for teaching and correction and reproof. It gives us a sense of, of who God is. We want to be careful with that. We look in John 1.19, and just listen to these categories of people. It says in John 1.19, this is the testimony of John, that's John the Baptist, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him. So the Jewish people sent priests, those are religious leaders, and Levites, also religious leaders, they sent these people, these categories, to John the Baptist to ask him some questions. Listen to their question. They asked him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. And they said, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. They said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John the Baptist said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said right they had been sent from the pharisees and they asked him then why are you baptizing if you were neither the christ nor elijah nor the prophet 
And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. All I want you to see in that whole exchange is that you've got the Pharisees and the Jews and the Levites and the priests who are asking John the Baptist, who are you? And their questions are provoked by their reading of the Old Testament. They believed what they read in the Old Testament, that there was a Messiah coming, right? That there was an Elijah that would come before him, right? They had read the scriptures and their lives were organized, so they're looking for the Messiah. But what John the Baptist says to them is, you're looking for the right thing, but you're missing him, right? We saw that even in the first part of John last night. It said Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. So even for those whose lives are organized around the scriptures, even for those who've read the Bible and understand that the Messiah is coming, they still can sometimes miss the heart of who Jesus is and the heart of Jesus right in front of them. And that's as true today as it was in the first century. There are still people today who know a lot of stuff about the Bible and have studied it intently and have dedicated their lives to understanding it, and they miss Jesus. And if you know everything about the Bible and miss Jesus, you fundamentally misunderstood the point of the Bible. Because the Bible is not meant to be an instruction manual. The Bible is not meant to be a theology book, right? If God had wanted to give us a systematic theology book with a bunch of bullet points of things we're supposed to believe, he could have given that to us. That isn't what the Bible is. The Bible, all 66 books of it from beginning to end, tell a story, a big overarching story. And the big overarching story is this. God created the world and us in it, and we were in harmony. It's what the, the Jewish people would call shalom or wholeness, wellness, right? There was harmony between God and man. There was harmony between man and woman. There was harmony between God and man and woman and the created order, right? There's this beautiful peace and shalom, wholeness and wellness as God created it. But then we get to Genesis chapter 3, and sin enters the picture. We saw a perfect you know, depiction of that last night with the tree, right? We get to Genesis 3, and mankind has the opportunity, rather than loving God, they have the opportunity to serve themselves, to pretend they are God. And so they take the fruit, sin enters the picture, and now what we have in the second phase of the story of the Bible is brokenness. Brokenness and otherness. Remember at the beginning, what do we have? Wholeness and wellness, shalom. God and man, man and man, and man and woman, and man and creation, all of this in harmony. Now that harmony is busted because of sin, because of brokenness, because of selfishness. And you guys, we're still living in that today. You don't have to look very hard, turn on any news channel, and you can see that we're not living in harmony between man and man, man and woman, man and woman and creation, man and woman and creation and God. There's no harmony. There's tribalism. There's brokenness. There's all kinds of hatred. There's all kinds of injustice. There's all kinds of brutality. There's sexism and racism. There's all kinds of violation. That comes from the brokenness that we see revealed in the Bible, right? But it isn't God's initial purpose. So check this out. We get to the third phase of the major story of the Bible, and it's this. We get to the New Testament, and Jesus comes. We're reading that in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus comes to bring light and life, to bring family, right? Adoption. We talked about that last night. To bring grace and truth. What's he doing? He's coming to restore the wholeness that he created us with at first. And in Christ, and we'll talk about this more next week, in Christ we have the opportunity to see the brokenness of mankind, the brokenness restored. Jesus comes and he makes a way for wholeness to happen again. And then you get the very end of the Bible, Revelation 21, Revelation 20, 21, and you get to the end, and the end of the story is 
perfect wholeness again. All things will be restored, right? No more war, no more selfishness, no more greed, no more racism, no more sexism, right? No more of any of the broken things we see in our world. God is restoring all of those. The Bible tells a big story, and it's the movement from wholeness or shalom to brokenness, to wholeness in Christ, to perfect wholeness in the end. That's the big story. So when we look at the truth of God revealed in the Bible, again, the point here is to recognize that everything the Bible does points us to Jesus. Everything the Bible does points to Jesus. How many of you have ever been to, a, have you ever gone to like a symphonic concert? You ever go see the symphony in your city? Yeah. When you go to see the symphony, if you haven't gone, you should go. Classical music is good for you. When you go to see the symphony, there's, a, there's an interesting thing that happens at the very beginning, right? When you go in uh, to, the, to the concert hall, you'll hear all the instruments warming up, right? And it sounds like a mess. They're all doing their own thing. They're making noise, right? Then the oboe player, the first chair oboe will come out. And the first chair oboe will rap on the stand. Everybody gets quiet. And then the first chair oboe plays an A. The note was an A. And the entire symphony orchestra tunes to the A. Now the reason that the oboist does that and not one of the other instruments is that the oboe is the one instrument in the entire symphony that is uh, the least likely or the least susceptible to environmental things like humidity, heat, cool. The oboe stays consistent in its tone and in its pitch. So the oboe player plays an A and the entire symphony tunes to the oboe's A. If they don't do that, if they don't tune to the A, it doesn't matter how good the violin players are. It doesn't matter how good the French horn players are. It doesn't matter how good the rest of the instrumentation is. They can play a piece of music in front of them with perfect accuracy, and it will sound like trash if they're not all tuned to the same note. Does that make sense? We live in a world where everybody's tuned to their own note. And it doesn't matter what you're doing. Or it, that's why we see all the brokenness and all the discord. It's why we see all the violence and the hatred, because we're tuned to the wrong things. The Bible tells a true story of man's ability to retune their instruments to the A. Jesus is our A. Jesus is the truth. And we have the ability to tune our lives to that singular note. So does every human being on the planet. But if we don't do that, what we get is trash. What we get is disaster. What we get is war, right? What we get is hatred. It's interesting that these first disciples were looking the, these early Jews were looking for the Messiah, but they missed him. They couldn't see him in front of them. The Bible reveals something to us about who God is. It reveals something to us about the overarching story. But the Bible was never meant to be a weapon or a tool to hurt, oppress, suppress, humiliate, or control other people. Right? It was never, ever intended to be that. What's it intended to do? It's intended to bring us together. It's intended to bring shalom, wholeness, and wellness. So in the places where you see people taking their Bibles and using their Bibles to justify, justify suppression or oppression, where you see people using the Bible to justify hatred, right? where you see the, the people using the Bible to justify all of their greed and their pride, you can know that while the Bible is true, their interpretation is broken. That is not what the Bible does. The Bible makes us family. It restores us to wholeness and oneness. That's who Jesus is, right? That's who Jesus is. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. And I, I quoted this last night, but I quoted it poorly, so let me read it to you. Hebrews 1, 1 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, right? He's spoken through the prophets. He's spoken through uh, all kinds of different things, right? But it says in verse 2 of Hebrews 1, 
But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. What Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3 tell us is that God has spoken in all these ways, but his final, clearest, most articulate and definitive word is Jesus himself. So when you're reading the Bible, and maybe you're reading Genesis, or you're reading Leviticus, or you're reading 1 Kings, or you're reading Psalms, or maybe you're reading 1 Corinthians, or you're reading Revelation, and you're like, I don't understand all this stuff. There's stuff in here that feels confusing. There's stuff in here that feels like I I don't understand how it all goes together. Or maybe you read the Bible and you go, man, there's stuff in here that makes me mad. There's things in here that I just don't, like I can't get why God is doing this thing. Remember that God's word tells a big story. And the story is of harmony and shalom through the death and resurrection of Christ. And there are all of these individual stories, but not everything we see in each particular page is meant to be an endorsement of that activity. There's all kinds of crummy stuff that people do in ancient times, just like crummy stuff that people do in modern times, right? If the Bible was written in 2022, there would be all kinds of contextual things that wouldn't make sense to people who read it in 3022. Does that make sense? It might talk to us about what things to watch on Netflix, or it might talk to us about what things to do on the weekend, and the people who read it in 3022 would be like, what is Netflix? I never heard of that before, right? There's a context to when the Bible was given, but there's an overarching story, which is the power of Christ to heal and restore what is broken. As I finish up, I just want to hit you with a couple of last little things. It is possible to to then think, well, if Jesus is the point, then maybe we just throw the Bible out entirely, right? And I want to be really clear that Jesus says that's not how it works. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Right? So what Jesus is saying is, we don't throw out the stuff that we don't understand or the stuff that feels old and outdated. All of it is there to point you to me. And in fact, we see another place uh, in the New Testament in Luke chapter 24 after the resurrection of Jesus, where he walks with some people and he shows them how all of the Old Testament scriptures point to him, right? So we need the whole Bible. We need all 66 books. It's all relevant because in one way or another, it points us to that wholeness, brokenness, restoration in Christ, perfect restoration story, right? So we don't throw any of it out. But we also don't want to get in the weeds on little things in such a way that we miss Jesus. So the last verse I want to read you this morning is with John 5.39. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees in John 5.39, and he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Right? Jesus says you're so busy looking at the, at the Bible, you're so busy looking at the written word, because you think that by studying the Bible, you'll find life. But the Bible exists to point you to me, and I am the place where you find life. Sometimes you'll come into contact with religious people or Christians that want to put Jesus and the Bible on the same level, right? They want to go, man, Jesus is super important and the Bible is super important, right? And, And while it is true that both are important, they are not the same thing. Jesus fulfills the Scripture. The Scripture points to Jesus. The Scripture is inspired and inerrant. It's infallible and sufficient, all the things we talked about already. But the Bible is only as good as it points us to Jesus. Jesus is the heart, right? So in those moments where you're looking at your world or you're looking at your own life or you're looking at your families or you're looking at your jobs or your schools and you're feeling overwhelmed because you're having a hard time organizing everything you see, 
into a clear narrative, let me remind you that Jesus is the organizing principle of the universe, right? Jesus is the organizing principle. He is the oboe's A that we tune our lives to, that we tune our communities to. I'll tell you one last story and I'll be done. Uh, The scariest thing that ever happened to me happened to me when I was in like third grade. I went to bed just like normal. Uh, It was like a Tuesday night and I woke up sometime later. I don't know how long I'd been asleep, but I woke up sometime later and I I was in a pitch black room, which was weird because I used to sleep with a nightlight. Don't tell anybody. And uh, I wake up in a pitch black room. I'm not in my bed. I'm lying on a cold, hard surface and I'm tied up. And I, it's so dark in this room or wherever I am that I can't even see my hand in front of my face. So I know something terrible has happened, right? Because I'm tied up, because I'm in the dark, because I'm on a floor someplace. And so I, I roll up onto my hands and knees and I start to crawl. And I can't get very far before I bang my head into a wall. I turn and go the other direction. I bang my head into a wall. I basically turn all four directions and I realize that I'm, I'm just kind of in a tiny box. And so I start to scream, right? I start to yell kind of just screaming incoherently, but also yelling for my parents or whatever else because I just feel like I've been taken from my bed and I, and I don't know where I am. I don't know what's happening. And then there's a, a blinding light, and it's not like an angelic light or whatever, but there's just like a light that when my eyes adjust, you know, it's really bright. When my eyes adjust, I look up and I can see my mom and she's standing over me. And, and as I look around, I realize that I'm in the front bathroom of our home. And apparently what had happened is I'd gotten up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and I'd taken my pants down and then I just laid down on the ground and went to sleep. And so I, I thought I was tied up, but that was just my underwear around my ankles, right? I rotate up onto my hands and knees and I start to crawl and I bang my head into the toilet and I go the other way and I bang my head into the bathtub and I go the other way and I bang my head into the sink, bang my head on the wall and I think I'm in a box, right? It's pitch black, I feel like I'm tied up. But when the light comes on, you guys, there are two things that happen. Two things that happen almost simultaneous. The light comes on, and the first thing I feel flooding through me is what? Relief. Safety. Because I realize I'm not kidnapped. I'm not going to die. I haven't been taken from my home. I'm in my home, right? I'm in my home. So when the, when the light, when the truth of where I am is exposed, the first thing I feel is orientation and safety and security. I'm in the presence of my mom even. But then immediately, almost simultaneously, I feel embarrassed because my pants are down around my ankles, right? Because I've been banging my head into a toilet and screaming bloody murder for the last five minutes, right? I feel embarrassed because of what I thought was true and the things I did in the midst of that confusion. Does that make sense? Jesus is the light and the life of men. Jesus is the A, that every, every instrument in the orchestra, no matter who you are, where you come from, what your experience is, we all tune to the A. So that the community that is built is one of wholeness and shalom, right? And when that light comes on, there is both a moment of euphoric relief because you realize there is a purpose to all of this, that God has power, that he's with us, that he sees it all, that there's a story he's telling, and that story's trajectory leads us to a place of wholeness eventually, right? But there's also a moment of embarrassment because some of what we have believed is goofy, and some of what we have been afraid of we didn't need to be afraid of. And some of what we were so angry about, we don't need to be angry about. Some of what we were fighting over, we can set aside. But it's because we were in the dark, because we weren't tuned to the A, because the light hadn't been turned on. My encouragement for you this week is to allow God's word and the truth of God's word to point you to the truth of Christ, who is the truth of God, and to allow your life and the beautiful music that you in particular make to be tuned to Jesus. That's why the Bible exists. Would you pray with me?
God, thanks for these students. Thank you for the ways in which they're processing all of this. I know that, like me, everybody in the room grapples with the pain and the injustice with the sorrow and the anger that we see in the world, and there are times where none of it makes sense. God, we are grateful that you are a redeemer, that while we are currently living in a time of great brokenness, that because of your sacrifice, wholeness can be found, and ultimately wholeness will be ultimately and totally restored. Thank you for the story that the Bible tells and our part in it. Help us to recognize your light turned on in our life, so that we can both feel the relief of knowing that you are in charge and that your truth is true. And help us also to remember your grace in the moments where we're tempted to be embarrassed about what we may have believed before. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.